This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Congressman Ruben Gallego is part of a generation of lawmakers defined by their military service in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. The Arizona Democrats' new book, They Called Us Lucky, The Life and Afterlife of the Iraq War's Hardest Hit Unit, is a chronicle of his time as a Marine in Iraq in the early days of the war there. Our own Jim Saxa sat down and talked to Gallego about this warts and all account of things. Gallego has a reputation for being a candid, straight-talking member of Congress. He does not disappoint in this book, and he does not disappoint in his interview with Jim. He talks about making rash decisions, his complicated relationship to his alma mater, Harvard, being honest in portraying his less mature 25-year-old self, his struggle with the concepts of luck and God, post-traumatic stress disorder, and what he feels is his obligation to be a good man. Have a listen to their recent conversation. Congressman, thank you for joining us. Why did you write this book? I mean, I've been trying to write this book for about uh, 15 years since I left the war. And, um, and, and other guys I serve with actually also wanted to write this book. Um, you know, there's an interesting story here that really got forgotten uh, about these group of men, most reservists, from all walks of life. Um, and from different parts of the of the country, right? You have Navajo men that were living from the leaving the reservation. You had you know New Mexicans uh, who had been here for generations. You had immigrants that had just gotten here and joined the Marine Corps, and you had you know Ohio you know country boys uh, all merging together uh, into this one unit that ended up seeing some of the hardest combat of the war. And unfortunately, as as you read the book we ended up taking the largest uh, killed in actions of the Iraq war and probably since the Vietnam war from what we could at least do our research minus the, the Beirut bombing. Um, and so a lot, what happened is a lot of my friends, the guys I served with, you know, as time went on, you know, our story was, was being lost, you know, and we started losing men to, to suicide, to just age. Um, some of the, some of the people I talk about in the book just recently died, uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of us felt that the, that what, everything we sacrificed for was going to be forgotten. So um, I started writing the book and eventually I was able to pitch it to HarperCollins uh, uh, right before the pandemic. And, um, and, I, and they, they agreed to it. Uh, and, you know, largely the reason I'm doing this is because, A, to, again, to remember them. But B, I think it's important that you see a side of war that's not the glorification that you see in a lot of these other books. And you, you will see all sides of the war in, in this books, the ups, downs, the nastiness, the humanity of it. Um, and, and you'll see some great heroes and you, you'll see some just normal men. Um, you'll see some uh, great warriors and you'll hear about some people that, you know, probably could have done better. One of the things that really struck me about this book is that it is a, warts and all account of war. Um, and that surprised me doubly because you are an elected official and 
in the book, you describe things, you basically described all the things that a Marine would do over there uh, mm-hmm. from the conversations I've had with some of my friends that were Marine officers. Um, it, it was things like, you know, sneaking booze and by hiding them in teddy bears, which is yeah. like fun. Um, you, you make a lot of gay jokes, um, you know, and you also write about how you liked it when the Iraqi kids would follow you on patrol because that meant there was a less, uh, a lesser chance of being attacked. Yep. Um, and that just sort of is, uh, sort of an unvarnished account that you don't expect from uh, a member of Congress, uh, because a lot of this paints you in not the most favorable light. And I guess, uh, my, my question is, is like, why did you decide to include all of those, uh, all of those warts? Because that's who I was at 25, number one. And I think it wouldn't have been very honest for me to try to put, uh, you know, 42, almost 42 year old Ruben Gallego congressman into the body and the mind of who I was at 25, because it, it, it first of all, the story wouldn't, wouldn't meld. It, it wouldn't be real. Uh, but number two, that is what is in the military. Now, I, I, I'm sure in our time since I left the military, I, I think it has become a little more, um, you know, open and accepting to, you know, to the LGBT community. But back in the day, you know, I was always, you know, have always been very much uh, open and accepting to the LGBT community. But um, the men that we were with, you know, we, we made jokes and that's and that's how it is. I mean, I talk about there about going to strip clubs. I mean. That's what happens. That's when you, I was a young man. And, and that's what a lot of Marines still do to this day. Uh, and we swear and we cuss and I swore and I cussed and I, you know, had my, uh, you know, and then you, I, I talk about it once in a while when I had my interactions with Iraqis, sometimes they were good. Sometimes they were bad. Sometimes I had to make a snap decision. And, you know, I, I think at one point, I, I, I'm sure it's in the book, it's all kind of blurry. I had to butt stroke a man uh, to get him out of the way. And, you know, if someone says like, oh, my God, you bust your mouth. Like, yeah, that's actually better that I bust your than I would have shot him because that was my other option. And, uh, you know, that, that's just really like that is that is a real it's a real book of what people are. And, and you know, at that point, I was a 25 year old infantry Marine in a war zone. And uh, I'm not going to hide, you know, all that comes with it, warts and all. Uh, well, I think it's refreshingly honest. Uh, but I, I guess my, my question is like. Are you concerned that this will be mined for uh, attack at fodder? I mean, look, uh, I've been in politics probably, seems like way too long, but actually, I guess it's you know, somewhere there. You know, lying uh, to win office is not going to be something that I'm, I'm going to do. And certainly, I'm not going to dishonor my men by, you know, writing a book that is a fictionalized account of what happened there. Like, I could have written a book that I think glorified or or made me look like a um you know some hero in this war that you know acted in a manner that is you know upstanding all the way but that's not what it is and and it's a disservice to americans that we lie to them about this because it it allows us to actually end up in these 20-year wars because you don't really think about the things that we had to do and i did you know i had to do what i had to do to keep myself alive keep my men alive keep my sanity. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes it may not mesh with what happens in politics, but it's what happened when I was 25. Let's 
dial it back a bit. I want to ask you about the writing process uh, before mm-hmm. we get too deep into the book. This was a difficult book for me to write. It was, you know, I had to relive a lot of things that I had suppressed for years, a lot of feelings that I had suppressed for years. Um, I have PTSD. I'm, you know, currently dealing with PTSD. So talking about the things that I saw and then actually having to explore further what I felt about it. And then, you know, things that I totally just, you know, you know, absolutely forgot. Like in one portion of the, the book, I talk about um, uh, this uh, tank that got blown up and the guy Chavez, I'd come Chavez was a, a nice guy that I used to hang out with. And uh, he gets hit, the tank gets hit and then they evac him into another vehicle that also gets hit and he's blown to pee. It's like the worst fucking luck you could ever imagine. Am I allowed to swear? Yes. Okay. Encourage Steven. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, it's like the worst fucking luck. And, and, and I, and, and I was on patrol. So we had, we had to rush over to secure the scene. And so of course I'm very heartbroken about uh, uh, Chavi. And then um, that night I'm, I have to still guard the scene because there's tanks still there. There's still body parts and there's, dogs that are trying to come and take their body parts for meat. There's tons of wild dogs running in Iraq. And so I, I start shooting at the dogs so they don't take it. And it, I felt bad that I was shooting at the dogs. Well, I don't, the, the war, sorry, the book actually brought that memory back. I had, I had totally suppressed it because I was going through the, you know, the losses while I was there and talked about Chavez. And then I remember the secondary. And so like, that was extremely just, I just remember when that hit me, it knocked me on my feet for two days and just the mixed feelings. Like, why did I care about these damn wild dogs trying to eat my friend more so than what had occurred? It's, it's just a really, you know, and that's part of the process, but that's why I had to do it. Like the, the reason that I had to do it is because a lot of my men just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that, that was something else that struck me reading the book is that, um, it seemed like a lot of it was you processing what you had gone through over there. And uh, unlike some other, uh, especially political memoirs, but also war accounts, uh, it doesn't seem like there are any clear, neat uh um, sort of lessons that you have. You don't have a like, and therefore at the end, here is yeah. what. Yeah. yeah so, so here's, here's so a lesson. Have, like, yeah. I'll give you a lesson. You, whether you live or die in war is almost always going to be about luck. And that's the unfortunate truth. And, um, you know, I, I know there are some things I did probably that kept me alive, kept other men alive, but the amount of times I should have died or I, that I knew friends of mine that died by just, fucking bad luck uh you know that's that's the lesson right the randomness of war i mean that's actually one of the when we were coming up with the, the the title of this book i was actually trying to you know trying to turn the the title to be more reflective of what actually ha- what i saw in war right um and uh never could get there but you know the lucky lima was uh was a, was a, was i think a really good compromise because you know that's actually what they um Okay. Uh, they call this lucky because that's uh, you know actually reflective of what we we're called back in the day. But I was actually always trying to find a, a time that had to do with chance, you know, and uh, a title, and I just cannot get it. Yeah, well, so that's something that I wanted to ask you about is that you know luck is obviously this this huge theme and throughout the book. But after reading it, I I still don't really know where you you stand on 
luck. I mean, at, at times you write, you know, you, you describe luck almost like it's a stand-in for God or fate. And at other times, I mean, you called it, you know, luck is just an illusion. So, you know, where, where am I? Yeah. I mean, much like my feelings on God, like I'm, I'm confused about luck, right. I'm confused about my relationship with God. It's something that I'm always kind of exploring both in the book and actually in real life, you know, um, because, you know, I, the, the, I hate the randomness of luck in the sense that it means that nothing, there is no control and this is all chaos. Right. And you are just basically coming out of it one way or the other. And then there's the other portion of it is like, if luck favors me, then it must mean it's disfavoring somebody else. Right. And I, and it's kind of my same concept of God is that I like, I don't like the idea that God favored me, but killed my friend who had kids. Right. But I also don't like the idea of there being no God and this is just all fucking chaos. And so the same, it's the same concept with luck. If you look at, you know, luck and God are basically in this book synonymous with each other and they flip back and forth. Yeah. Um, and so I want to develop back again. You, your book starts with your time at Harvard. Uh, and you write about how you didn't really fit in, how your yeah. classmates assumed you'd immediately wash out of the Marines and just how different uh, you were from, you know, the, the, the richer kids. Yeah. And, and the, it comes off as mostly negative. And I'm, I'm just wondering, why did you focus so much of the book's attention on this period of your life? I think... Um and it's actually interesting because like I had a long conversation with my co-author because I actually didn't even want to talk about Harvard. Right. Um, and I actually tried to, I tried to keep even Congress out of it about me being a member of Congress, but like my, my uh, book uh, publishing company said it just didn't make sense. Right. Like if you just, you know, you have to. And so, you know, Jim basically said like, well, you're not, no one's going to understand why a 25 year old is a Lance corporal in the Marine Corps you need to give that background. And I give the background about Harvard because look, Harvard did do a lot of great things for me. I certainly don't believe I, I wouldn't be where I am without that education and more importantly that network. Right. But part of what I wanted to communicate was the reason why I basically left Harvard. Um, it, I'm not, I left, they kicked me out. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, it was a cultural problem. Like I was not ready for uh, the world that, you know, I, I had, moved to. I mean, like I was a Chevy Impala guy moving into the Mercedes-Benz world, right? And that culture was tremendously hard. Like you said, uh, you had uh, been kicked out, but you're sticking around Boston yeah. at the point in your life. And you come across a Marine uh, recruiter yeah. and you know you decide to, to, to enlist. Um, and one of the things I want to really ask you about that moment is your recruiter tried to steer you away from the infantry, right? <laughs> yeah. And you refused. And you wrote, I want to quote, uh, if I was going to be a Marine, I wanted to be on the front line seeing action. Yeah. Why? Well, it's not, you know, one, I didn't want to do, there's two things I didn't want, right? I didn't want to serve just to say that I served, right? And just be like, oh, you know, I joined the Air Force you know, but love the Air Force and get me wrong, right? Or, you know, do something. If I was going to join, I wanted it to be meaningful, right? And I felt that anything less than infantry was not going to be meaningful. And, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of go back and forth in the book is that you see me go from, I really wanted to be on the front lines towards the end of work. It's like, I just want to get the fuck out of this war, right? And that's how war really happens. And that's how most men are when they join in the military, especially, um, and women now, obviously, but 
And then when I say men, I say a lot because like there were very few, we only interacted with women in, out in the field, uh, female Marines once, right? So the world has changed in terms of us old dudes. Yeah. Um, but that's how most Marine infantry men are. They want to be in the shit. They want to fight. And that's what you are when you're 18, 19, or you know, 20 when I joined. Uh, and then when you get older and you're 25, you're like, well, that was stupid. I should not have thought that. I should not have even been wishing for that. Yeah, I mean, and, and that that's something else I sort of picked up uh, on in the book. And you, you say specifically, you know, um, before you went to therapy for your PTSD, you sort of like made snap decisions. It seemed like Marines, joining the Marines, snap decision. I mean, going to Harvard almost sounded like a snap decision. It was just like, Harvard, the best. I will go there. Um, and, you know, and it, and it continues uh, throughout, um, even running for Congress. You say you spent uh, like 10 minutes thinking about it. Uh, I don't, and that's being generous. I think it was probably even less than that, to be honest. It, I think it took me 10 minutes to put the tweet out. I think it, I did it within like a minute. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that included like composing the tweet, uh, right. pulling up Twitter. Yeah. Um, so I guess my, my, my question is, is like, you know, how do you have any regrets about some of those snap decisions? And do you feel that, you know, now you, you describe in the book again, how you, you don't make those snap decisions now that you've gone through therapy? Yeah. I don't know if I can say I regret them because it's probably two things. Number one, got me to where I am. But number two, it's also a survival mechanism that I had, I think, developed. Um, and like, I, I needed therapy before the war. You know, I grew up in a, you know, a great mom, very supportive, but I had a very you know, abusive father who was mentally and physically abusive of me. Uh, and, and then to make matters worse, he leaves, which in some respect might be good because you know, um, you don't want to be around that. But at the same point, I'm the only male in my family. I have no male uh, figures at all, which is why I get very close to some of the Marine leaders that I have in the Marine Corps. Um, but it's, it's those types of decisions that, that I think mentally allowed me to kind of keep moving forward instead of, you know, being in a depressing state that I would have been right. And, you know, after my father leaves, we're, my, my mom working, working mom, you know, four kids, we move into an apartment. I sleep in the living room on, uh, on the floor with a little floor mat, you know, from sixth grade all the way to college. You know, my, my first bed from sixth grade to college is actually when I go to Harvard. And when you're growing up poor, you really need, for me, it really helped to have a focus, right? And to have something to dream for, because if not, what you're dealing with in the now is really shitty. And when you, if you focus on that, it'll drag you down and it'll drag your whole family down. And I couldn't drag my family down. I was, you know, the only, I I consider myself the leader of that family. And if, if, if I didn't bring on the cheeriness, if I didn't have a focus, then my whole family would go down. I went to this leadership camp where I, you know, was with a bunch, got nominated by, um, uh, some teachers. And at the illusion camp, I met a lot of really rich, rich white people. And this is, uh, and these kids were already talking about Harvard, Yale, Georgetown. And I re- like, I remember talking to them and, and realizing like, wait, I'm just as smart as these kids, right? Why is everyone trying to push me to community college when I know I'm smarter than that kid? And he's already talking about Yale, like, like I'm going to, I should just go to Harvard too. And that's how it actually happened. And then just the Marine Corps too. It was, um, 
you know, it was a snap decision. Yeah. Um, but it's also something I'd always wanted to do. I had always wanted to join the military. I had looked at the military academies for a little bit. Um, I just didn't like the idea of like four years with, you know, no partying and, you know, no girlfriends or anything like that. So that's basically why I didn't do it. Uh, and um, I also had a lot of community. Pr- Once I got into Harvard, there was so much community pressure for me to go to Harvard. I couldn't just take off a couple of years and join the Marine Corps, and then go to Harvard. And so this was something that was, I think, aligned with what I'd always wanted to do. And when I saw the moment, I jumped on it and took it. And that the moment was getting kicked out of Harvard. So let's move forward. Uh, tell me about your best friend, uh, Jonathan Grant. You know, it's tough, uh, still tough talking about him. Um, so Jonathan was, it's got to be one of the most n- nicest human beings in the world. Big man. Like he's, uh, uh, you know, physically he was a very uh, a big, big man. Not fat, but not, not skinny either. Um, and, but he was just a, a good soul. And um, he, had, he and I just started hanging out and he would come over, you know, three or four times a week, you know, at least for one hour to work me out. Right. He'd bring weights and he literally would sit in front of me with a bucket of like chicken and eat chicken uh, while I was working out. And then we'd go hiking in the mountains of, um, of Santa Fe to get my, my core stronger. Uh, And he did it because he, you know, wanted, not because he wanted me to get ready for war, because he wanted me to be able to fit in with the other Marines. And the fact when you're not physically fit, like that's a horrible thing to have. And, um, and we became very, very close. And then we ended up, um, you know, becoming very close friends. And at one point I get left off, I get left off the roster and uh, they asked me, you know, do you want to go infantry again? Do you want to go infantry? Or do you want to go admin side? And I knew Jonathan where Jonathan was. So I asked to go infantry largely because, you know, number one, I'm an infantryman. That's all I really know how to do. But number two, I had promised his wife that we would stay together. Yeah. And I felt that the book's emotional apex came the day after you got back from Iraq. Jonathan is a, is a, is a number one, John is a, is a joker. He, he has, he's pretty, uh, Grant and I usually go by last names, but Grant was a joker. Um, loved stealing my, my AirPods and not AirPods, whatever they were called back in the day, listen to my music. He'd always have candy or snacks around him. <laughs> and, um, so I, you know, he, he, he dies about halfway through my activation. And so I don't get to see, I don't go to go to his funeral. Um, so by the time I get back, he has a grave and has a gravestone. Um, and I have some time off. So I take off to, uh, see him and, um, I buy him his, uh, his candy. I think it was starburst and, uh, I go over and I see him and, uh, you know, I talk to him and ask for his forgiveness. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I promised him that I would be a, a good man. And uh, I'm hoping that I live up to that. Congressman Ruben Gallego, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, we told you it was warts and all. Our thanks to Jim and to Congressman Gallego. And with that, have a happy and safe Thanksgiving, everybody. 